Welcome to WFIU's Profiles. I'm your host, Annie Corrigan. Our guest today is David Ward Steinman. He's an adjunct professor of music at Indiana University. He's also a distinguished professor emeritus and former composer-in-residence at San Diego State University. Awards for his compositions include the Burns Prize from Columbia University and four BMI SCA awards, to name just a few. He's had compositions commissioned from the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and the Joffrey Ballet, among others. Welcome to Profiles. Thank you. Good to be here. So we've got four pieces of your music that we'll listen to throughout the hour. We'll discuss your thoughts about the music, why you composed it the way you did, that sort of thing. But first, I want to talk about your teachers and the idea of teaching composition to students. So your teachers on your bio include Darius Mio, Milton Babbitt, Aaron Copeland, and Nadia Boulanger, all over the place in music history. Yes. So I'm most curious about Nadia Boulanger because she's perhaps the most famous of all composition teachers. She taught Aaron Copeland, among others. And she is certainly unique. Uh, and uh, she changed my life, really. I had studied with the other people you named before I went to her. And uh, pieces I had vetted with them or worked on with them uh, were brought to whatever state they were in. And the passage that I had I had worried about within these pieces uh, were not noticed by people like uh, Mio or Babbitt or some of the others. And I was beginning to think, well, maybe it's all right. You know, uh, there were passages that I would think would be strong, and then there were connecting passages like Bailey Bridges that I wasn't that proud of, but nobody seemed to notice. But when I played these pieces for Boulanger, she went unerringly to exactly these places, and she would say, here it is not you, there it is not right. And it was like an external conscience just peering over my shoulder. It was uh, an extraordinary mystical experience. Here she is intuitively grasping what I was doing and recognizing the problems with the music that I had been subconsciously aware of but didn't know what to do about. It was a revelation. So when we started my lessons, I brought her a finished piece, a finished movement of a brass quintet. And she looked at it and she found problems, weaknesses in it. She said, well, here, such and such is wrong. The voice is not right. It could be something else. So I would say, okay, I'll go back and rewrite it. And I was determined to try everything she suggested at least once. So I did. I went back home and I rewrote the passages that she said were weak. I brought it in to her the next week. She found more problems. So I said, okay, still keeping an open mind. I went back, rewrote, rewrote. I did this seven times. Each time I thought I had finished the piece. It was not until the seventh rewrite that everything locked in and I understood what she was talking about. By this stage, every single note had been vetted and I had to keep all my sketches to prove to her that I was making choices. She said, never erase, throw away your eraser. You want to compose by making uh, separate sketches so you have something to compare. And by doing this, you systematically exhaust all the possibilities of the material in a given context. Well, at the seventh rewrite, I knew every single note in this particular piece had been vetted. I couldn't think of anything else to be said about it. So I brought it into her, and I played it for her. And for the first time, she didn't say anything except, I would like to hear it again. Would you please play it once more? So I did, and then she smiled and turned to me and said, Yes, I think it is right now. And uh, those were high words of praise indeed. So I continued this. The year I was with her in Paris, I wrote and rewrote, and I produced my first symphony. 
uh, which went through 15 different rewrites, and the sketch stages uh, produced manuscript about a foot thick, you know, just all the manuscript paper. When I got back home, I orchestrated it. It won two national contests, was played by the San Diego Symphony, has since been done by two other orchestras. I've even conducted it once. Uh, it was my awakening piece, I suppose, but really should have been my opus one. But I learned so much from her. And uh, to summarize the process, I suppose you could say it's a systematic exhaustion of all the contextual possibilities that you come up with. And she, uh, she was quick to point out passages that she would say, here it is not you, here it is weak, here it sounds like somebody else. And if you keep eliminating those and rewriting them, eventually what is left, you hope, is you, you know, your voice. And that's, I think, why she was such a great teacher, because she had no stylistic axes of her own to grind. She had given up composition much earlier for various reasons, so she could be truly objective in her criticism. And uh, that's why composers have different voices, uh, not only the American ones you name, like Copeland, Roy Harris, Persichetti, even Elliot Carter, all very distinct voices, but even the Polish composers that she has worked with. Uh, she has this unerring instinct for bringing out the best in you and reestablishing my work habits. You know, I never worked so hard at composing as I did when I was with her. Now it is easy. You know, like uh, the technique is there. And pieces flow, but I still sense her peering over my shoulder uh, at every note I write. You know, she's my conscience now. Totally changed my life. A wonderful experience. You said that she would say things to you like, this, this passage is not you. Did she know your music well enough to be able to say that? Not at all. She was judging from the prevailing context. And she would find something that was stylistically inconsistent at the moment. For example, the my first piano sonata uh, that I'd played at Tanglewood, I'd been playing around. That was my senior graduation piece at uh, Florida State University. I'd done with uh, Mio also in Babbitt later. They'd all you know, approved it. Uh, I played it for her, and she pulled three notes out of the bass line, widely separated, that happened to be the first three notes of the Rachmaninoff C-sharp minor prelude which I had never noticed before, and I doubt that anyone else would, but if you would do a Shinkarian reduction of the bass line, there they were. So I said, oops. <laughs> so it was things like this. She was sensitive to every single detail, and every note had to count. You had to be able to justify every single detail. Her approach was exactly um, microscopic, whereas Darius Mio's approach was the very opposite. He would say things like, that page is useless. It goes nowhere. Throw it out. Throw the whole page oh, out. jeez. But Boulanger would say, why do you write C-sharp here? Are you sure C-sharp is the best note, David, or F-sharp here? You know, I had to be able to demonstrate to her that the choices I'd made were the result of a process of elimination and were indeed the best-sounding choices that were possible for the passage. So is she thinking that if... You can justify the choice to her, then you've justified it to yourself. Exactly. So let's think about your music. What aspects of your composition say Nadia Boulanger? Where can I see her in your compositions or hear her, I suppose? Well, I studied with her in 1958-59. That's my year in Paris. And back then I was writing a kind of American neoclassical music, like my symphony, a uh, strong jazz influence, which is still there. 
So um, I think you can hear that in the uh, chamber concerto I wrote for orchestra that was part of my subsequent doctoral dissertation, and then, of course, this first symphony in 1959, uh, and a few works since then. I no longer write neoclassic music, but I do write polyphonic music where voice leading is important, and I'm very careful about that in contrapuntal passage that the voices are independent. Another example for a pedagogy, I'd had two years of counterpoint as an undergraduate, 16th and 18th century counterpoint, in mostly two parts, three parts, a very little bit four parts. She wanted me to demonstrate counterpoint up to eight parts. I had to uh, write in each of these species, uh, setting a cantus firmus she had given me, that is a core melody, and to write counterpoint all around it in each of the possibilities up to eight parts, for which I'd never done before. Uh, but I did, and I did that in both 16th and 18th century styles, and that took the first couple of weeks of our, our lessons, and then she was de- decided that I had enough technical preparation that I could spend the rest of the year composing. <laughs> so I was very fortunate in that <laughs> regard. <laughs> like composer calisthenics. Exactly. Yes. Uh, she kept pushing your envelope. Whatever you, you could do, she would find a way to make it harder. She would give you uh, a score to reduce at the piano, an orchestra score, or something, uh, Renaissance choral music and all different clips. If you could do this, she would then ask you to transpose it, play it up a step, play it down a step. And that took a lot of mental gymnastics to keep up with this. Let's fast forward then and talk about your composition students people you worked with at San Diego State and the folks here at Indiana University, young composers who are looking at this bleak job market and worried, sick, that they're not going to be able to make a living. What do you tell them? Well, what Boulanger told me and she told her students was that if you can live without music, then you shouldn't be doing it. If music is important to you, that it has to be in your life, then you will find a way. Uh, there are lots of answers to this. Lou Harrison, a composer friend of mine on the West Coast, uh, had other jobs. Uh, he was a reviewer for the New York Herald Tribune, wrote criticism. He worked uh, as a florist for a while. He worked uh, in a veterinarian's office. And his uh, premise was that you should save your best energies for a composition and do something else that is totally different from that. Uh, But to get back to your question, interestingly enough, my students in San Diego mostly wanted to work in commercial music. They wanted to work in Hollywood, and many of them are doing that. Uh, One of mine actually orchestrated the first five minutes of the first Star Wars film after the title credits, working with uh, John Williams. And I have others who are working uh, with uh, video games, doing jingles, and so forth. Uh, They all studied concert music, of course, and I also ran the new music ensembles for 17 years, so they learned how to improvise and do that. But uh, not many of them wanted to be a a great classical composer uh, writing for full ensembles. A few of them have. Many of them have won prizes, and uh, some of them are uh, teaching, academic. That's another possibility if you go on for graduate degrees. Uh, When I did it, I looked at it as two or three years of subsidization, while I wrote music and, and did a doctorate and a, and a master's, and I, I got very lucky in being in the right place at the right time. But I also had a fling in Hollywood for one season. I, I went up and did ghost cues for the old uh, Barnaby Jones series and did some documentaries and stuff. Ghost cues. Ghost cues, okay. 
in Hollywood, there's a cover composer assigned to a movie, uh, a television series, or whatever. And uh, sometimes it's a one-man job, but often the composers get backed up, and they will call in assistants. Uh, no one ever turns down work in Hollywood because it's hard enough to get. Uh, so they are frequently run ragged. And uh, even if they're asked to write in styles that are very incompatible with them, they will have a friend who knows how to do that. So they will call up and uh, farm out some of the work. Uh, a ghostwriter does not get on-screen credit, but he gets to write some of the music, and he gets paid for it. He gets royalties. And often this is the way new composers are brought in. They will apprentice to a cover composer, and he will farm out some of the work. And I remember getting a call early in the week saying, uh, we have some cues for you. Can you come in on Friday for a spotting session? So we don't say no. So I was then still teaching at San Diego. Um, so I would drive up and get the cues, and it turned out they needed five minutes of music fully orchestrated by Monday. So I spent the weekend composing and uh, timing to script. I was given a timing sheet that had all the dialogue, all the action broken down to the fifth of a section. I had to make it work. I delivered the uh, orchestration on Monday. I didn't have to copy it. They had it copied. It was recorded on Thursday you know, with the orchestra. So it's, it's exhilarating at that speed. It's uh, also frustrating if you're holding down two jobs at once. I, I did it for one season, and it happened to be the last season of the old Barnaby Jones show, uh, and that closed down, and it was the last series that by this production company, so they fired the man who had hired me, uh, and they closed down their music uh, studio. But I'd had my fling with it, and I enjoyed it a great deal. So... Uh, to get back to what you were talking about, uh, most of the California students are interested in working in the commercial world, and there are openings for them. Uh, if they don't find work as a composer, they find other things to do, but they can still compose and write for local groups. Here at Indiana, it's, it's very different. All the composition students here are really serious about classical composition, and that's very refreshing. And they are very, very talented and very bright and very sharp. They win prizes all the time. It's, it's an amazing school, and I'm very happy to be a part of it. Well, I wonder, for the students out there who are just, they dread the possibility of having to teach theory or history as a way of getting a job, as you said, going to a college and getting a teaching job so that they can compose. Is there any route for a young composer to purely make a living composing art music? Is that possible at all these days? It's possible, but it's very rare. The composers who can do this, you could count on the fingers of one, maybe two hands. And it doesn't come early in the career. Copeland was doing it, certainly. John Adams, currently. Ned Roram. But usually they do something else. If it's not teaching theory or teaching academically, uh, they will write or they will conduct or do master classes. Copeland was able to survive without even a college degree. Well, and he's Aaron Copeland. So. He's Aaron Copeland. And he never uh, never taught full-time in an academic setting. But his royalties were very nice. And they generate a lot of money that goes to the Copeland uh, Foundation for, uh, for Recording American Music, which is a wonderful thing. But yes, uh, composing art music is not very uh, lucrative at any stage unless you're getting a lot of uh, performances. Well, let's take the time now to listen to a piece of your music. 
This is, in fact, off of your latest CD. This is Moray for chamber ensemble and piano. And in this performance, you're going to be playing the piano. So yes. tell me a little bit about this. It's my reaction to minimalism in a way, which was very big back in the 80s and still is in a way. Uh, I like very much what Steve Reich was doing uh, with the, uh, the pattern music and some of the other composers in that field. But I was critical of it at the same time because it uh, uh, ultimately got boring to my ears. And you must remember that this is a music that came out of all-night coffee houses in San Francisco and the Bay Area. Uh, I wanted to work with uh, repetitive patterns, ostinatos, we call them, that would overlap and go in and out of phase just to see what I could do with the material. So moiré is um, a product of that thinking. It, uh, the term, uh, the name itself comes from uh, watered silk uh, or the, the interference pattern that you get when two different kinds of grills move or you see light shifting and so forth. Uh, it seemed to me that what the music was doing was this. So you have uh, these rhythmic patterns like fives and sevens that go in and out of sync and the piano is overlaid and has a little cadenza in the middle. And it's kind of fun. It's not so typical of what I'm doing now, but I think it's a, a quick introduction to just working with patterns and think of watered silk, moiré, changing reflections and and images, shifting patterns, and so forth. Music composed by our guest, David Ward Steinman. That was Moray for Piano and Chamber Ensemble, uh, specifically flute, clarinet, bassoon, alto saxophone, trumpet, trombone, and percussion. And David Ward Steinman, our guest, played piano in that, all directed by conductor David Amos. So let's go on to another piece of music uh, that's probably near and dear to the, the jazz portion of your musical soul. This is free improv uh, that you're playing with a Jacobs School of Music faculty member, James Campbell, clarinetist. This came about as he was playing a piece of mine, a composed-out piece called Fantango for Clarinet and Piano. It's a new piece, and there's an option in the middle for improvisation. And he was so good at it, and we had so much fun that we decided to take that outside the piece. We tried it once with no ground rules except to just listen to each other and uh, see what happened. So we did that once, and we said, okay, let's, let's try it on the concert, but let's don't plan it. So there were no plans, uh, nothing, no notes, nothing. Uh, all we decided that was I would start, 
and he would come in and we would see what happened. So it, it is improvisation. It is not jazz improvisation specific, although uh, Campbell is a fine jazz clarinetist, and he can certainly do that, and he did it in, in my Fantango. But in this piece, uh, I start with the low clusters in the uh, piano, uh, he comes in, then we sort of re- respond to each other back and forth, and there was wonderful rapport. You know, it's so exciting to play with uh, with Jim. It lasts only about three minutes, and we decided that we would stop when we lost interest in it. Uh, I, the, the one uh, imperative is to avoid boring people, so I said, uh, uh, let's stop before we get bored with it. <laughs> and I think we did, and I hope you will agree. So when you're on stage and, and you feel the piece sort of calming down into the end, you just, you sort of look at each other and give a wink or a nod? and We sort of look for an ending. And uh, if I made an ending, he thinks he can make a better one. He will go on uh, and we'll wrap it up somehow. But generally we know when everything falls into place. And, uh, there was a lot of empathy going on there, and I'd love to work with him again. We're looking forward to doing more of this. Well, so this is going to be a live performance that we'll hear, which is especially cool because there's this palpable energy to any live performance. Before we get to it, in a lot of your compositions, there's improvisation. Do you find that when you're working with classically trained musicians, uh, perhaps someone not quite as amazing as James Campbell, are they open to improv? Are they willing to get out of the written music and sort of explore themselves as musicians? Not all of them are. And I've had commissions... Uh, which uh, literally specified no improvisation. The performing artist wanted everything written out. So that's simply another condition of the commission. I like to give the performers some choices. Uh, The improvisation doesn't have to be jazz, but I can give them notes to improvise on, or they have choices about phrases to play. For example, in a piece I wrote for piano and percussion, uh, prepared piano and percussion, had a lot of uh, Balinese gamelan sounds in it. Uh, and there are cadenzas for each instrument. At one point, the percussionist spins a coin on the timpani head, you know, a large coin like a silver dollar. And uh, if it comes up heads, there is one path through the piece. If it comes up tails, there's another through the ending. So this happens at one point. And, uh, he signals the, the percussionist can control the exit to the piece. At that point, uh, and I'll know whether it's heads or tails by what he does after the coin stops spinning. Uh, and along the way, there's material to improvise on. So that, that's one kind of choice. Uh, other choices are when to play certain things. I can uh, give all the players in a small group a page of notes or phrases, and they have to listen to each other. I can describe the effect I want, and uh, it's up to them to choose what they play and, and when they play. Uh, so there are all kinds of improvisation options. And then I have third-stream jazz pieces uh, where the players are certainly accustomed uh, to that. I have a concerto grosso for combo and uh, big band. That was a commission through uh, the Modern Jazz Quartet for their School of Jazz at Lenox, and they uh, did it in Carnegie Hall. Um, I have a new concerto, jazz concerto for two pianos and rhythm section, which we did here on faculty recital a year or so ago. Lots of things like that. And I also write jazz pieces. I started out as a jazz pianist pretty much at the same time I was um, studying classical piano. And I led a band in high school from the 10th grade on. I mean, a big band, swing band. So uh, that's always been a part of my life and work. And I still play jazz piano. I play around in local clubs and so forth. And um, when I was in Australia on a 
a Fulbright senior scholarship, I met an incredible pianist down there, uh, the Bill Evans of Australia. This is Tony Gould. And we wound up doing a two-piano jazz album uh, together, and I think you'll wind up with some of that a little bit later on. So uh, even though I'm not writing an overtly jazz piece, I think the uh, the rhythm of, of jazz, the vitality, rhythmic vitality, uh, I think imbues a lot of my music because I, I like that kind of energy, that high energy uh, in my music. And we'll talk about your, uh, your performing, whether it be art music or jazz, in just a second. But let's go ahead and take a listen to Free Improv, performed here by our guest David Ward-Steinman and clarinetist James Campbell. A live performance by clarinetist James Campbell with pianist David Warden-Steinman, our guest on Profiles today. That was Free Improv. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. This is WFIU's Profiles. I'm your host, Annie Corrigan. David Ward-Steinman is a composer and an educator. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. This is fun. So we've got another piece of music coming up, uh, a piece actually that I performed with you. I'm sure you don't know this, but it's the Chroma Concerto. And I was in the new music ensemble several years ago when we oh, performed it. Oh, of course. Wow. And you played prepared piano or fortified piano, as it says, and the synthesizer. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, you know, and I, I was sitting there, I remember sitting in the ensemble thinking, what the, must this be like for him, the composer, now as a member of the performing ensemble? Do you turn off the composer part of your brain when you're in the ensemble performing one of your pieces? I have to focus on the part I'm playing. And some of the music I write is difficult. And I find when I'm playing my own music in an ensemble, I am less sensitive to what the other players are doing. Because, yes, I, I'm a pianist at that point. And I'm not the best judge of a recording that I am playing uh, until I stand outside and I hear the, the the takes. You know, there are things all of a sudden that I did not hear when I was playing because I was too focused on my own part. At that point, yes, everybody else has to take care of themselves. It's up to the conductor to pull things together. <laughs> so, do you hear some things when you're playing your own music thinking, oh, gosh, why did I make that choice, that particular note or that particular harmony? That just didn't quite work. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes it does. I like to edit out the bad choices if I can. But <laughs> yeah. uh, I also like to be true to the spirit of improvisation. 
this piece that, uh, that you're, you're talking about, the Chroma, Chroma Concerto, uh, that was commissioned years ago from a uh, chamber orchestra in Phoenix, an offshoot of the, the, the Phoenix Symphony. And we got to record it much later in the Czech Republic uh, with the Moravian Philharmonic Orchestra. And that we used a full string section, not just one on a part, uh, like the music ensemble here. And it was very different to hear it uh, really played soloistically. And uh, that was an experience. And, uh, David Zubay, the conductor, was very kind to program it. And he, did, of course, did a great job. The concerto is for four keyboards. I call it a concerto for multiple keyboards and chamber orchestra. And the four are fortified piano, which is what I call my prepared piano. And I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. There's fortified piano, celeste, Toy piano, three octaves, and synthesizer. The toy piano was a problem with the recording, getting it there, because when we knew the recording was going to be done, they did a whole album of my music in in the recording sessions, but I'd given them the specs for the toy piano, and they said they would get it. The day before we were to leave, and I was taking solos so far, we did a whole album, we recorded cello concerto, recorded... uh, Viola Concerto, and we recorded the Chroma Concerto. So the day before we were to leave, with the solos, the percussionists, and so forth, I got a telegram from them saying that I should bring my toy piano, that um, they didn't think I would like their toy piano. So this was an enormous headache, because I have a three-octave, full-range toy piano that I obtained in an antebellum mansion along the Mississippi River north of New Orleans some years ago. I talked them into selling it, and I've had fun with it ever since. I use it in gamelan kind of pieces, etc. So to have to pack this up with all the music we're taking and everything else was a big headache. And we got to Olomouc, the Czech Republic, and we had the orchestra for a week. It was a very heady experience. So I asked to see their toy piano because I was prepared to be uh, very upset if I'd gone to all this trouble. Nothing. And uh, they invited me backstage, and they had apparently advertised in the local paper. And a housewife came in. She opened her purse. She pulled out a one-octave instrument with painted black keys. It really was a toy piano. But, of course, it wouldn't work for uh, my piece at all. It's, it's a real virtuoso part. And uh, my wife, Patrice Madura, who's also on the faculty here, wound up playing it. So we did the recording. And after the recording was over, there was a problem getting the toy piano shipped back because I couldn't mail it back because we were going to stay behind to do a little touring and sightseeing. It was too big in its box for any post office to accept. I couldn't mail it in Prague. I couldn't mail it in Olowitz. couldn't mail it in Vienna. And it was becoming a white elephant. And once we were stuck in a train station in Bratislava, where there were no signs in any language I knew, and we couldn't figure out where the next train was, and Patrice was getting very anxious and bored. So she just jumped on the nearest train and said, come on. So I... The, ne- the train was already moving. I got the car behind her, and I yelled to the percussionist who had the toy piano box, throw the toy piano on. So he did. We were strung out over three cars, and we eventually got it all together. Uh, eventually wound up in Budapest, and I did what I should have done from the very beginning. I bribed the concierge. I explained the problem. He said, no problem. I fix for you. Five dollars, ten dollars. And sure enough, he got it mailed back, and it showed up safe and sound a month later. <laughs> The case of the toy piano. The that's toy, that the traveling toy piano. Wow. Wow. That's, well, let's take a listen to this then after that story. This is the third movement from the Chroma Concerto performed by the Moravian Philharmonic Orchestra. Mm-hmm. 
Music composed by our guest, David Ward Steinman. That was the third movement, lively, spirited, from the Chroma Concerto, a piece written for four keyboards and orchestra. Prepared piano, celesta, toy piano, and synthesizer are specifically the four keyboards. In the liner notes for this piece, uh, it says the score was completed on the 300th anniversary of Bach's birth, J.S. Bach's birth. Is that a coincidence, or can we hear bits of Bach's music in this piece, maybe? You can hear some counterpoint in it. Yes, you can. You can hear traces of a Balinese gamelan as well. Uh, I must tell you about the, the percussionist. There is a cadenza in the middle of this movement that is a joint improvisation between the percussionist, John Flood, and me. And we worked together a lot back in San Diego. Uh, we knew each other very well and liked to play together. John's very versatile. Well, when we arrived for the rehearsals for the recording, there were about nine or ten percussionists lined up in the back. And I said, what are all these people doing here? So we only contracted for three. And remember, this is a newly liberated ex-communist orchestra, so there's a lot of feather bedding in it. So, no, 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 no worries. Uh, we'll take care of it. We don't have to pay extra. So it turned out everybody really specialized. There was one guy who played only the triangle, another played suspended cymbal, and so forth. So John comes up, and he starts commandeering all the equipment he's going to play. He surrounds himself with half an orchestra himself. He does, the, he does it all, and the players in the percussion section are looking on. I thought it was with awe and admiration. We've got you know a real virtuoso American percussion is going to show you how it's done, folks, You know what one guy can do. And I figured they were really impressed, but I found out later they were feeling sorry for John because his union wasn't protecting him. They were making him – we were making him play all of these instruments, you know, one guy. <laughs> what does their payroll look like if they have one guy for the claves, one guy for the triangle? My goodness. It is well padded. I remember there was one rather noble lady, violinist, uh, who sat last chair in the section, wore mini skirts, and seemed to be playing only whole notes and half notes. And we figured out she was a protege of the manager, <laughs> or possibly. Well, that happens in the States, too, i got to say. <laughs> it's not just European phenomenon. Let's talk about the fact that uh, you are a composing performer or a performing composer. How do those two roles in your musical life complement one another, enhance one another, detract from one another? Well, I, I don't see it as a dichotomy. Uh, I play the piano all the time. I used to do a lot more chamber music than I'm doing here. I mean, other composers. And when I was leading the uh, new music ensembles, one was a faculty group, one was uh, a student group, I, I wound up playing a lot of music. And in fact, when I was in Australia for a year, I did concerts of contemporary American piano music all over Australia and New Zealand, not just my own music. Uh, and I've done seminars when I, where I play, uh, master classes on things like the Copeland Piano Sonata. Uh, interesting thing about that was that when I was studying with Boulanger, uh, that, I, that was not a piece I knew. But after I demonstrated my facility at score reading and so forth and uh, in the early stages, she asked me on the spot in front of the big analysis class to come up and sight read the Copeland Piano Sonata which I'd never seen before at that time, my callow youth. But I got through it all right, and I decided I would really learn it after that. Uh, so I made it kind of piece I often did. So I, I'm attracted to doing modern music. I've also you know, done the classics. I studied with a fine uh, pianist, Edward Clinney, who 
uh, knew not only all 32 Beethoven piano sonatas, but would let the audience choose among them which of the 32 they would like to hear that night on that program. So I got a very solid classical grounding from him and from my mother, who started me off at a very early age in, in piano. But uh, jazz and popular music has always been a part of it. I still play jazz. I'm doing more jazz now, I think, since I've come to Bloomington uh, than I did in uh, San Diego. But I was doing a lot of playing. I played piano with the San Diego Symphony, with the San Diego Chamber Orchestra. I was first called pianist at the Civic Theater for touring shows. I could uh, could read very quickly, you know, sight read, come in and do a show. And that kept me sharp. And I enjoyed doing that. That was exciting, invigorating. Uh, and I, I think all of that somehow gets assimilated into the music that I write. I like to think of my composition as controlled improvisation. I want it to have the spontaneity and freshness of a good improvisation, but with the perfection of notation where you write out the, the mistakes, the things that don't sound or work so well as you were talking about. So I, I think then of composition as controlled improvisation. But I'm after that energy, that spontaneity, that... Uh, uh, that gusto, and hopefully the excitement where things come together in a, in a fresh way. I've got one more question for you, then we're going to hear one more piece of music, actually one of your jazz compositions, where you're performing and improvising as well on top of one of your compositions. If I could put one word to your musical career as I was doing all this research, it would be well-rounded. So you you moonlit as a movie com- movie music composer, you write jazz. You write uh, in non-Western art forms. We've talked a lot about gamelan today. Mm-hmm. And you write, you know, straight up art music, Western art music, minimalist music, as well as really elaborate art music performed by orchestras. Just comment on the fact that you have so many different interests and how that you think has helped your career as a composer and as a professional musician in general. I don't think I know how to say no. I regard almost any invitation or commission as an opportunity to try something new. Uh, and I'm always asking, what if or why not? In Indonesia, you can almost never get no as an answer to any question. You ask anybody, have you done such, such and such? Do you have children? Are you married? Or do you know? The answer is always not yet. It's never a, a door-closing no. It's a not yet. So when opportunities come my way, even if that's something I've done before, I'm usually anxious to try it out and see what will happen. I have a commission right now from the Philharmonic Winds of Singapore, apparently a professional band there. And I've been to Singapore twice now. So that's kind of exciting uh, to see if I uh, can do something that will reflect their local culture and my music as well. I've uh, been doing world music for many years. I even teach a course in it now. So it all seems to come together somehow. It works. It absolutely works. And you have such a a wide range of music. I think we've heard a little bit of everything today in this edition of Profiles. It's been really lovely. So let's finish with uh, Under Capricorn. This is a piece uh, off an album for jazz forehands. It was you and Tony Gould. So talk a little bit about this composition, this recording process. Okay. It's not one piano forehands. It's two pianos. Two pianos. And we spent a week in a wonderful mountain studio in Melbourne, Australia, with two perfectly matched Yamaha grand pianos, concert grand pianos. Uh, Great experience, great fun. We each contributed some originals, and uh, 
then we did some set pieces. I found out that there were two big works for two pianos, jazz pieces, that were in my publisher's catalog that had never been performed, premiered. So I was browsing through his files one day when Tony and I decided we would do this album, and I found this big piece by Marshall Solal, a 20-minute suite for jazz piano, and the original version of John Lewis's In Memoriam for uh, the, originally for two pianos, then for modern jazz quartet, and finally for orchestra. So Tony and I decided we would do an album together, and we did. The piece that you're going to hear is called Under Capricorn, which refers to the Tropic of Capricorn, which runs through Australia. And I wrote it when I was in Australia. So it's a uh, Latin jazz piece, and the first part is notated, and then we both take turns improvising on the uh, the choruses. And Tony does a kind of Montuna uh, rhythm out of it. and It's just great fun and high spirits. one of the uh, most rewarding experiences of my life, just, just seeing what would come and improvising for a week and learning this music and trying it. So on the whole album, which is called In Memoriam, there are these composed pieces, and uh, which, which all have different improvisation. Then there are some standards, by mostly by John Lewis, and then some originals by, by both Tony and me. So you'll hear one of my contributions. Excellent. Glad we can play it. David Ward Steinman is an adjunct professor of music at Indiana University. He's also a distinguished professor emeritus and former composer-in-residence at San Diego State University. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. Great fun talking to you. Let's take a listen to Under Capricorn, performed by pianist David Ward Steinman and Tony Gould. I'm your host, Annie Corrigan. This has been WFIU's Profiles. Thanks for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in January of 2012. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.